Um, I am so excited for um, Dr. Tupamahu to be speaking with us today, otherwise known as ECA, um, which is thank you for you know, uh, making the time this morning and, and um, sharing with us today. And so without further ado, I'm just going to hand it over to him, our third and last session in this series, Jesus and Protest. Take it away. <laughs> All right. Good morning, everyone. Let me just turn on my screen share here. So, can you all see that screen share? Yeah. Okay, let me see. All right, you can see, right? So, if you have your Bible with you, can you please turn with me to Mark chapter 5? Mark 5, 1 through 13. Mark 5, 1 through 13. So I have the text in front of you. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, you can just see on the screen. But if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Mark 5, 1, 13. Let me just read this passage first or this uh, text first to you before uh, we think about uh, the message today. Mark 5, 1 through 13. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of Gerasians. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tomb with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he, he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had strength, has had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stone. For six, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, come out, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly, earnestly not to send them to, to the, out of the country. Now they're, now they're, they're, they're on the hillside. A great herd of swine was feeding. And the unclean spirits begged him, send us to the swine. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drawn in the sea. Let me go back here. Sorry. All right. So every time I think about Jesus and protest, this passage somehow comes to my mind. Um, and then this story has always intrigued me for a very long time probably because I come from a Pentecostal background. As Pentecostals, we love the story of miracles. We love the story of demon possession. 
and we love the story of supernatural exorcism, otherworldly battles, and so on. We love to over-spiritualize this narrative. I thought that the demons here are like Dracula or vampire who are looking to suck the blood of, out of my body. That was the conception of the unclean spirit that I had in the past. However, the more I read the New Testament, the more I realize that any construction of story, any narrative is intentional and self-reflective. That is to say that narrative, a narrative is not only about a sequence of events or the setting or the story, mere story. A narrative is actually an argument it is an explanation of people's lived reality, people's lived experience. It is a window for us to see how people see themselves, how people see themselves in light of the world around them. When I think about story or narrative, I think about Toni Morrison, for instance, uh, her book or her novel, um, Beloved, when she wrote the story of Satyr, who was being raped, beaten, and dehumanized in, in the plantation called Sweet Home, which is very interesting because for a white plantation owner, that is the sweet home, but for Seta is hell. And Seta ran away from slavery. I think Tony Morrison is not just telling us the story of this particular person, which is based on true story, but she's actually telling a story of the community, the story of lived experience of a community living in plantation. <clears throat> a story of black community, a story of struggle. That is the power of story. Story is not only about that particular person. It reflects, it tells us the lived communal experience. So when the this story, particularly in Mark chapter 5, is included in the Gospel of Mark in a narrative about Jesus. Mark is telling us not only the story of Jesus and this particular person who live in that area, but also Mark is showing us a social imagination of the early Christians, of how they see the world, of how they perceive themselves in light of that worldview in light of the way that they, they see the world. Mark is describing us the, the experience of people who live in the first century. So when we, when, when, when we think about this passage, Mark chapter 5, I want you to just keep this in mind, all right, before we continue our uh, conversation today. So let's go back to the story. After Mark describes uh, the condition of the, this demoniac person, Mark tells us that there is a dialogue going on between Jesus and him. And in that conversation between Jesus and the man, Jesus asked this man, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. What is legion? The Roman legion, which consists about 5,000 to 6,000 army, 
is the war machine that became the very reason why Roman Empire has its glory and its power. Roman army structure use begins at the lowest level with legionary. Legionary is the, is the soldier. Eight legionaries form what we call contuberium, which is the smallest unit in the Roman army. Ten contuberium form a century. And the head of century is a centurion. We've, we've encountered these names as the, as the title centurion in many parts of the New Testament. Six centuries make up a cohort and 10 cohort and a cavalry, uh, cavalry unit form a legion. So a legion is the largest Roman army unit and Roman empire exercises its domination over the people, over the economy, over the, terri the territory, through its military power. It is what makes the empire last for a long time. In fact, the Roman economy was mainly supported by military expansion and campaign. Typically, the, Roman, the Romans did not st station the legions in every areas or every cities that they conquered. They usually placed client kings in every city that they, they conquer. However, legions were stationed in strategic areas. For instance, in, in, in Palestine, they, they stationed four or five legions in Syria. Why? Because if there is anything, if there is rebellion in like in, in Jerusalem, they will just send a legion, boom, destroy it. And, and, and the Jews know this, this story very well, that in, in the year of 70, the Roman legions and Roman army came to Jerusalem and basically destroyed the whole thing because they rebelled against the Romans. Roman, Roman legions are unseen, but they are there. So what is Mark, is, what is Mark trying to say here to us? I think the message is very clear. This is not just about the spiritual battle. The message is very clear here. The imperial machine, the legion, the imperial mach machine is demonic. That is the message that Mark is trying to say. This story is describing Jesus' combat, Jesus' protest against the engine of the empire. It is a story the story of a protest against the empire through and through, it sends a very clear, strong political message. If you stand with the legion, you stand against Jesus. If legion has a control over you, you will lose yourself. Jesus and Roman legion are in opposition to each other. That is what we see in this particular story. Just like the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Mark names the, this demon, I think we need to also name the demon that builds, sustains, and inspires, expands the American empire. And the name of the demon, or the name of the legions of the American empire, is white 
whiteness. Whiteness is the engine that moves, that begins, that starts this nation. In order to understand this, I, need, I think we need to go back as far as 1790. Only 14 years after the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Congress passed the first Naturalization Act that states, I want to show this really quick to you so you can see that. Let me go back here. All right. The first Naturalization Act pa um, passed by Congress in 70, uh, 1790 that states that, look, if you can see my cruiser here, that any alien being a free white person can be American citizen. So from the very beginning of this nation, this nation is built as a racialized space. Whiteness stands at the, as the, at, the, at the threshold, as the border that distinguishes between Americans and non-Americans, Americanness and non-Americanness. Whiteness is the defining, fe defining feature of American foundation. This country was established as a racialized space, as a raced, with ED, yeah? raced space. This is the ideal that we have in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal at its very origin. Only means only means white men were created equal. Now, speaking of whiteness, I know that I can step on so many people's toes now. But I need to clarify here first what I mean by whiteness. And I, I in, in my experience, people can get so irritated when, when you begin to pu put your finger on this. Because people can handle to talk about themselves. You know, you talk about Asian American, you talk about, you know, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, but don't talk about whiteness. It, it, it is a hot potato. But whiteness is not, the first thing I want to say is whiteness is not pigmentation. No one has a white skin color. Can you turn to your neighbor and see if you can see this color of their skin? No. Whiteness is not a skin color. So white is white. White is actually a social signifier. White is given to you. White is attached to you. Whiteness is an idea. Whiteness is an imagination that looks for a home. That's why in the, if, if you follow the debate on this particular, particular um, um, act in 1790, in, 18, in 19th century, early 20th century, the definition of white here becomes a huge debate in legal system. So whiteness is, is, is an imagination. I would say whiteness is like a, a ghost that looks for a home. At one point, the home of whiteness is only those who are from Britain. And then it is expanded to those who are from um, you know, Ireland, from Italy, from all kinds of places in Europe. That, that, and, and in the late, 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 late 19th century, whiteness somehow 
expanded into language as well. That's why people who come from Britain at, in the in late 19th century call themselves white-speaking races. Oh, sorry, English-speaking races, not white-speaking races, English-speaking races. So they, they tried to define whiteness through this performance of English. So, 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 so whiteness is an idea, whiteness is, is an imagination that wanders around to look for a home. It exists, but simultaneously not exist. It is and is not at the same time. It is like a ghost. It is unseen, but it's real. Whiteness is a way of life. And whiteness is the legion that controls American imagination, that sustains American imagination. I want to push this further. Cyril Harris, in a very important essay published by Harvard Law Review in 2006 called Whiteness as Property, arguing, she argues, Cyril Harris, argues that whiteness is a construction social construction, mainly to secure and control property. Whiteness is thus, is thus according to Harris, are all about ownership. It is about economic and the social and political control. So I wanna, I wanna, I wanna read a little bit as uh, an excerpt from uh, this essay by um, Cyril Harris to you today. This is what Harris said, Professor Harris. She, is a, she, she teaches at uh, UCLA now. The origin of property rights in the United States are rooted in racial domination. Even the, in the early years of the country, it was, not the con it was not the concept of race alone that operated to oppress blacks and Indians. Rather, it is the interaction between the conception of race and property that played a critical role in establishing and maintaining racial and economic subordination. The hyper-exploitation of black labor was accomplished by treating black people themselves as object of property. So, so for Harris, the idea of whiteness is constructed in order to secure their right to, to, to own other people, which, which in, in this context, black people as their object of properties. Race and property were thus conflated by establishing a form of property contingent on race. Only blacks are subjugated as slaves and treated as property. Similarly, the conquest, removal, and extermination of Native American life and culture were ratified by conferring and acknowledging the property rights of whites in Native American land. So what he argues is that when whites come and this white construction is, is, is imagined, they begin to see the land as as uh, in not, not owned by anybody. So they, when they come, they claim that in the name of whiteness and they create all kinds of laws in order to protect that right of property, that property rights. 
Only white possession and occupation of land was in, was validated and therefore privileged as the as a basis for property rights. So this whiteness is all about the control of economic control of 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 property in the, from the very beginning. This these distinct forms of exploitation each contributed in varying ways to the construction of whiteness as property. Oh, this is a long essay. If you have time, read the whole thing. It, it's just, it blows my mind every time I read this essay, how the construction of whiteness is intended to secure domination of property. Let me go back again here. So at the very foundation of this country, we can find the persistence of whiteness. Whiteness is what moves, what motivates, what permeates almost every aspect of the society. Whiteness is the, is the ideology that devalues, dehumanizes black and brown bodies. This is the ideology that thingifies, if I may use the term from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thingifies, meaning to say making somebody thing, black and brown bodies. Whiteness is the standard of living. Whiteness is the unmarked identity. If we just open our eyes, we actually we should be able to see whiteness everywhere, but so many people cannot see it. We live in a white world. I was just having a conversation with a, a friend who cannot see white in, anywhere, and I see everywhere. When we study history, for instance, we study history of white. We hear the story of Christopher Columbus discovering America. We hear the story of westward expansion. We never heard the story of, East, of the beginning of America from the East. We see the monuments of white people all over the place. When we go to the church, we see the picture of white Jesus. We see the image of white God. Early this year, Stanford psychologist Stephen O. Roberts published a research in Journal of Personality and Social Psychology showing that U.S. imagination of God is always about white men. So every time you imagine about God, you always think about white men. And this is a persistent, persistent imagination of God. We worship a white God in church. And, and, and Roberts argues, uh, this term for psychologists, Roberts argue that there is a correlation between your image of God as a white man to the idea who's going to, 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 idea, to the idea of who's going to rule the world. So if you think that that God is a white man, then it will affect the way you see who can rule the world. White men can rule the world. We sing and glorify, we sing songs and that, that glorifies whiteness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, you know, and then we are clean white as snow. When we read literature like Shakespeare, Joseph Conrad, for instance, white is often described as pure, holy, and black is ugly, evil, and lost. When we study the Bible, white biblical scholarship have never named as such, never had any signifier. They are the standard. Others are named black scholars, black biblical scholars, Asian biblical scholars, Hispanic biblical scholars. When we go to grocery stores, we see the section of ethnic foods. 
White fruits are never named or marked as such. Why? Because whiteness is the default category. Whiteness is what, what makes up America and the others are ethnic. Whiteness is the dominant norm. When we listen to music, other music is described as ethnic music, while white music has never been named as such. It's just music. In the assemblies of God, non-white and non-English speaking churches are called ethnic churches or ethnic fellowship. Whereas white American churches have never named as such, have never named as a white church, never, just assemblies of God. They are never named white congregation. When we watch Hollywood movie, we see white faces become the hero, good guys, while say Mexican becomes cartels and, and, and gangsters. The English language we speak today is whiteness in, through and through in our culture. To speak English is to perform white. In the 19th century, as, as I have mentioned, whites are also called English speaking races. The criminal justice system is a huge mass. Brian Stevenson has described in a powerful way in both the movie and the, the book, Just Mercy, how criminal justice system is created to disproportionately harm black people. The war on drugs has led to the mass incarceration of blacks has been shown by Michelle Alexander, if you have time, read her book, uh, the, the New Jim Crow. Redlining policy in 1930s by Federal Housing Administration ensures that white bodies were subsidized so that they can own homes. Thus, the beginning of housing ownership inequality in America. In her book, Marked, Race, Crime, and Finding Works in the Era of Mark Mass Incarceration, Defa Pagers demonstrates that hiring habits underneath the non-discriminatory policies still favor whites over blacks and browns applicants. I can go on and on and on and on. You just, you just need to open your eyes and you, can, you know exactly we live in a white world. The American order is based and maintained, sustained by the legion of white supremacy. When Amy Cooper in New, in New York called the police on Christian Cooper, in, she taps into the sense of security provided by police and the entire criminal justice system. This white consciousness that has possessed her becomes apparent when she said this in her apology. This is what she said. When I think about police, I'm such a blessed person. I've come to realize, especially today, that I think of the police as the as protection agency. And unfortunately, that has caused me to realize that there are so many people in this country that don't have that luxury. Police as a, as a protection agency, why? Because the origin of police system in America is in slave patrols that, 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 that is created in order to secure white property. It is historically meant to serve whites. Last week, a black pastor called 911 because of alleged attack. When the police came, they arrested him in front of his assaulters. Again, 
The domination of whiteness is the engine of the American empire. Any imperial engine that subdues people, exploits them, controls them is demonic at its core. So I just wanna throw this to you today. What can we learn from Mark chapter five? Number one, the demon, the unclean spirit is often unseen. We should pray that God enables us to discern and see the operation and the symptoms of this legion. Just like the legion, number two, just like the legion completely takes over the imagination, the movement and the life of this man, whiteness also completes, completely takes over the imagination, the movement and the life of people. Number three, just like the story name, this story names the unclean spirit, the exorcism of this demonic spirit of the imperial engine cannot be done without naming it. We have to recognize the demonic power of legion. Number four, Jesus stands in opposition to the engine of the empire that exploits, marginalizes, and dehumanizes other people. Although the legion is strong, the story somehow tells you that Jesus is stronger. This demon trembles in the presence of Jesus. This story reminds us, number five, this story reminds us that the power of the gospel is not about taking us from this earth to heaven, but about bringing liberation and freedom from the bondage and the control of the engine of the empire. Let me circle back really quick to the theme of these past three weeks, Jesus and protest. Every time I see people walk and rally against white supremacy and then dehumanization of blacks, dehumanization of undocumented immigrants, of Asians, of Native Americans, I see the work of Jesus to exorcise the legion of whiteness. In order, the order In Jesus' imagination is not controlled and sustained by legion. The order instead is without legion. Can we imagine a world without whiteness? Oh my goodness, I don't know. Some people are so skeptical. I, I've heard some, some of my friends are very skeptical that we can overturn or turn this imagination, the, 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 the domination of this engine of empire. Can we do it? Some people are skeptical. But I still believe that this is an ongoing work. The road to exorcise, I love that language, exorcise, kick it out. This legion of whiteness from our church, from our mind, from our society is a long road. I'd like to read a statement from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his speech at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta in 1967 entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? And after he explains the vision of the future, and this is what he said, when our days become dreary, 
with low hovering clouds of despair. When our nights becomes, become, become darker than at thousand midnights, let us remember that there is a creative force in this universe working to pull down the gigantic mountains of evil, a power that is able to make a way out of no way and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. Let us realize that the art of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I just want to leave you here. Keep protesting. Keep pushing. Keep doing the work of justice because there you will see Jesus. Amen. 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 Oh, thank you so much. I, 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 I even want to pause for a moment and just take that in. The, the reality of what you've described for us um, that we hold intention with this great hope um, and the kind of perseverance uh, that it takes. Um, as you said, that the, the, uh, the road to exercise whiteness, right? Yeah. It's a long road. And, and we are on the shoulders of so many people who've gone before us to where we are in this moment. And, and we think about how far we have yet to go. Um, I think about, I remember the first time I was reading about women's rights and, and women who literally their entire lives were spent fighting uh, so they could vote. And, it, and, and some of them fought their whole lives and never saw that come to pass, like decades of their lives fighting for that. And, um, and yet it is the, I think that it is, it, Jesus came to set the oppressed free. <laughs> Jesus yeah. came to set prisoners free. He came to open our eyes so that we could see. He came to heal us of that brokenness, the wounds that oppressive systems have, have, have put on us, the ways in which it robs us of our, our identities in Christ and who we are. All, it, so this is the work to me, it's, it's, it is the, the work of Christ and the work of God through his church is what you were, you were talking to us this morning about. And um, this, so thank you so much for that message and, and we'll, um, as always, I think the, those words and um, the way the word cuts into us, it will sit with us for quite a while and be continue to shape us and change us. Um, just a few thoughts before we go into, there's a, a video, um, a video that we will have here soon. Um, uh, um, but um, as we, desire to be in uh, a, uh, a, a church that is following Jesus, a people following Jesus as we desire to be using this language of being an anti-racist faith community. There is a growth that I hope we experience um, uh, biblical and civic literacy, that we understand uh, the, the words of Jesus coming to us about the, this kingdom of God. And, and so we, in the next few weeks, we are going to have, this was such a perfect setup for the conversations we're about to have coming up, because we are going to have contextual conversations about the ways in which our culture and our context and our systems are contrary to the kingdom of God, as taught by and inaugurated through Jesus. Um, Erna Kim Hackett has this great metaphor, I think, talking about 
how we understand what we live in. She's, she kind of, she talks about our first language, like the, our primary language, what we learn first. It, we don't think about it. We just learn it. We just, we just begin speaking it. It's not until actually we learn a second language that we realize, oh, that's a verb. Oh, that's, oh, this is how these words are constructed. Oh, these words. And we see differences in, in meaning in our own language because we're holding up a second language. And so I think it, in the next few weeks, we are going to hold up the kingdom of God as Jesus showed it to us, taught us, and as he brought that kingdom to earth. What does that kingdom look like? And how is it different than this kingdom we've been born into? Different from the air we breathe and the water we swim in that we've taken for granted. And um, I hope and I pray that we really become this, this church we've always dreamed of, the church that God has the imagination that God has given us, the, the, the anyway, uh, that the way that the spirit is empowering and inviting us to live into. And um, so this message uh, was just such a perfect bridge into um, what is coming. And, and we are, um, thank you for the encouragement to continue in the work of that, that protesting does, it does matter. And, 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 and this is why we've been to this series is that those, um, um, as, as, and, and there are so many, and I, I think even as I tried to explain at the beginning, our singing together about who God is, is protest to the narrative that is in our world. Our gathering together and loving and caring for one another is protest to the hyper-individualism and um, um, isolation that the, the narrative of this world and its system provides. Um, and so, Anyway, uh, but going out and marching, um, signing petitions, um, voting, all of these things are ways in which we are protesting things that are, that are not right, that are not good, that are not just. And, um, and we, are, we are being called and liberated. It is for freedom that we've been free, set free. So we are liberated to be a part of that liberating work that God is doing in our world today. So, um, I'm going to uh, turn this over to Eric, who has um, put together a video just kind of capturing um, some moments from this week and a song that was on his heart. Thanks, Sonia. We'll get rolling.
pray together. Hmm. Hmm. God, there are moments where we recognize that we are, in fact, a long way from home. There are moments when we hear your words that we are wanderers, sojourners um, in this place that we have been born into that we live our lives in is not home and um, we uh, look to you this morning we find our place and our identity our hope our strength um, all that we need in you we find what it takes to keep taking those next steps. We find all of, the, all of that in you. We find our wisdom in you. We find courage in you. And we draw from you this morning. And we thank you for the ways that you are inviting us into your work. Pray that you would continue to open our eyes and our ears, that you would enlarge the capacity of our hearts, of our lives, um, to receive, to be generous, God. Um, pray this morning that you would alleviate fear, worry, and anxiety, that you would um, bring comfort and peace and hope, be merciful and gracious. God, that you would encourage our hearts this morning, um, that indeed the hope that we need that keeps us on this long road would be, um, we would find so much of that, just an abundance of that in you today. We love you. Be with your church, empower us, guide us. We love you in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining in today. And um, I think I'm gonna go back and listen again to um, those words and um, yeah, trusting that they're resonating in you. Um, Happy Father's Day to all of our fathers. We've got some new dads out there too. Happy Father's Day. I hope that you are all celebrated well. Uh, let's be praying, encouraging, and um, yeah, with one another this week. We love you all. Um, have a great week. <laughs>